the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Thursday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. Today we'll talk with Erica Young-Rights. She is the author of a very helpful volume titled After College, Navigating Transitions, Relationships, and Faith. If you have uh, a senior in college... Uh, or someone who has uh, recently graduated, this is an excellent book to help them navigate that new territory. It's not just like returning home after high school. It's a very different uh, season, and we're going to talk about the challenges of uh, navigating uh, that season, and uh, we'll talk with uh, Erica young Wrights later this hour. We're also going to talk in the 5 o'clock hour with Rachel Alexander. She writes with a stream. We're going to talk about uh, the case against former FBI Director Andrew McCabe and why she believes he should be prosecuted. We'll talk with Peter Sprigg. He's a Family Research Council senior fellow. Delaware made news earlier uh, for proposing a policy that would allow school children as young as five to choose their own gender and race. Delaware's governor has rescinded that controversial policy proposal, but we'll tell you more about uh, what happened there. And we'll talk with Patrina Mosley. She's the Family Research Council Director of Life, Culture, and Women's Advocacy on another pivotal First Amendment case, Nifla versus Becerra. That case is expected from the Supreme Court. They heard arguments, oral arguments, on the 20th of March, so their final decision should be forthcoming very, very soon. So that's, uh, that's our lineup. Also, we'll be giving away our next family four-pack of tickets, and these are uh, tickets to the World Forestry Center Discovery Museum. There's a lot to see there, and uh, in fact, this Friday they have a special event taking place. I'll tell you more about that then, but uh, we'll be giving away this uh, family four-pack, and... um It's not only good for Saturday, but you could use it other weekends as well. So it's not limited to this Saturday, but there's a lot going on there um, this weekend. So just wanted to let you know that. Well, it was 50 years ago that a shocking moment of violence rocked America. The assassination of Robert F. Kennedy. The tragedy erupted shortly after midnight on the 5th of June, 1968, at the Ambassador Hotel in Los Angeles. It should have been a great night for RFK. He had just achieved a grand victory, having won California in the Democratic primary. He was on his way to the party's presidential nomination. But not everyone in that building had similar plans. After giving a jubilant speech, Kennedy was led from the podium toward the hotel exit via a carefully pre-selected back route through the kitchen. But someone was lurking along that path. A 24-year-old Palestinian Jordanian immigrant named Sirhan Sirhan, he jumped out from behind a cart stacked with trays and began firing a 22 revolver. He lodged three bullets in his intended victim, one directly in his head, entering behind the right ear and piercing Kennedy's brain. Kennedy went down. He would never stand again. What did Sirhan pull the trigger, or rather, why? The answer was simple. The young Palestinian was seeking vengeance for the New York senator's support of Israel in the Six-Day War the previous June. Sirhan was vehemently anti-Israel when the Jewish state was had defeated the Arab states. He vowed revenge with Bobby Kennedy, the chosen outlet for his anger. His rage at RFK went ballistic. He scribbled maniacally in his diary on the 18th of May, 1968, 
My determination to eliminate RFK is becoming more the more of an unshakable obsession. RFK must die. He must be killed. He must be assassinated. Robert F. Kennedy must be assassinated before 5 June 68. Well, looking back, this was... um, This may have been the first major manifestation of Middle Eastern terrorism in the United States long before 9-11-2001. And yet it's crucial to understand that this was a deadly act prompted not only by the evil Middle Eastern terrorism, but also, albeit quite forgotten, by the Soviet communist country as well. What did the Soviets have to do with this uh, this deed? Well, the answer is the Six-Day War had been shamelessly provoked by the Kremlin, looking to exploit divisions in the Middle East and further exacerbate America's foreign policy problems at the time, especially in Vietnam. Soviet officials on the in May, rather, of 1968 had cooked up false intelligence reports claiming that Israeli troops had been moved into the Golan Heights and were ready to invade Syria. Moscow peddled the malicious disinformation to Egypt and other Arab states hostile to Israel. The Kremlin wanted to provoke a military confrontation with Israel, and it worked. On this, there is no debate. It is an historical certainty. Well, Moscow had uh, precipitated the Six-Day War in June of 1967, which in turn had prompted RFK's assassination in June of 1968. The rest, of course, is history. At the time of his death, Robert F. Kennedy was only 42 years old. Had he lived to win the presidency, he would have been 43 at his inauguration, the same age as his late brother at the swearing-in. He, his shooter was 24 years old, the same age as his late brother's shooter. Today, 50 years later, the shooter is still with us in prison. Bobby Kennedy is long gone, and who knows what might have been. Taking a look at some of the developing news stories of the day, fired FBI Director James Comey is facing new scrutiny after a Justice Department watchdog reportedly blasted his handling of the Hillary Clinton email probe. Yes, That is still with us. President Trump's June 12th summit with Kim Jong-un is back on because the president's cancellation forced the North Korean dictator to, as Rudy Giuliani reportedly said in Israel, beg for the meeting. A mystery illness similar to one in Havana, Cuba, has inflicted U.S. personnel in China, prompting their evacuation. You might recall uh, some U.S. uh, personnel was evacuated some time ago with some inexplicable Uh, problems. Full Frontal host Samantha Bee has now apologized to viewers for using a rather offensive word to insult Ivanka Trump in her uh, first show since the controversy erupted last week. Too little, too late. Carrie Underwood has made uh, Underwood rather has made history and Blake Shelton takes the top honors at the CMT Awards on Wednesday night. Well, taking a look at the lead story, a media report that the Justice Department's watchdog has prepared a draft assessment that chastises James Comey for defying authority as putting the former FBI boss leadership style under the microscope. Justice Department Inspector General Michael Horowitz has been exploring the DOJ and the FBI's actions during the presidential campaign of 2016, including whether Comey exceeded his authority in July of that year when he publicly discussed the Hillary Clinton email investigation and recommended against charges. That decision anger Democrats because the responsibility for the criminal case ultimately rested with his boss at the time, former Attorney General Loretta Lynch. Comey has since explained that Lynch's infamous June 2016 Phoenix tarmac meeting with former President Bill Clinton during the probe, as well as other non-public and unconfirmed intelligence that may have suggested uh, Lynch would short-circuit the investigation, led him to go public with the FBI's findings that Hillary Clinton had been extremely careless. A source cited by ABC ABC News claimed the report by the DOJ watchdog specifically called Comey insubordinate 
uh, with much of the criticism centering on the way he handled the reopening of the Clinton email probe in the days leading up to the election. And by the way, the long-awaited watchdog report on the FBI and the DOJ's Hillary Clinton investigation during that season will be released next Thursday. That's according to Justice Department and Inspector General Michael Horowitz. In a letter to the Senate Judiciary Committee, he said, we anticipate releasing the report on the 14th of June. Uh, That day is also President Trump's birthday. Not that the two are related in any way, but the inspector general also told committee chairman Senator Chuck Grassley in the letter that he has accepted the invitation to testify about the report on the 18th of June, uh, meaning his scheduled appearance before the committee is being delayed again. Washington has been on edge since last month when Horowitz told lawmakers the draft report was done. And again, next week, it will be made public or at least available to members of Congress. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up later this hour, we'll talk with Erica Young Wrights. She is the author of After College, Navigating Transitions, Relationships, and Faith. 16 minutes after 4 o'clock, we'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back 20 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, White House Press Secretary Sarah Sanders announced on Tuesday that it would be the uh, meeting between uh, King Jong-un and the President of the United States will be held at the Capella Hotel in Sentosa Island in Singapore. The former New York City mayor, who is uh, also part of the Trump legal team, Rudy Giuliani, Giuliani rather, uh, handling special counsel Robert Mueller's uh, Russian investigation, defended his sharp comments in an interview with the Associated Press, dismissing the notion that he could affect the mood before the historic meeting after... Uh, telling a crowd in Israel that uh, the North Korean dictator was on his hands and knees begging for the meeting to resume. Meanwhile, um, Kim Jong-un is reportedly terrified someone might kill him at the Singapore summit. And Dennis Rodman will be in Singapore during the Trump-Kim summit, according to reports. It couldn't get any weirder. Well, the United States has evacuated several more government workers out of the southern Chinese city of Guangzhou after medical testing revealed they might have been affected by the unexplained health incidents that already hurt U.S. personnel in Cuba, according to the State Department. A spokesman, Heather Newart, said a number of individuals have been brought to the U.S. They are in addition to a U.S. worker in Guangzhou who was evacuated earlier, as the Trump administration has already disclosed. The new evacuations come after um, uh, the United States sent a a medical team there to screen American government workers. Uh, Newart said the uh, screenings were being offered to any personnel that have uh, noted concerning symptoms or wanted baseline screening. The incidents have raised fears that unexplained incidents that started in Cuba in 2016 have expanded. U.S. government has uh, deemed those incidents specific attacks on American workers, but hasn't publicly identified a cause or a culprit. Most of the incidents were accompanied by bizarre unexplained sounds that initially led U.S. investigators to suspect a sonic attack, but still... Not yet uh, clear. Samantha B. opened uh, Wednesday night's episode of her TBS show by addressing the uh, firestorm erupted after last week's show in which she referred to Ivanka Trump by a very um, offensive name during a segment on immigration policy. It was the late night comedian's first show since drawing the ire of advertisers, viewers and the president. And she told viewers that her insult directed at the first daughter crossed a line. Uh, It is a word, which I will not repeat or allude to, that I have used on the show many times, hoping to reclaim it. She said, this time I used it as an assault. I crossed a line. I regret it, and I do apologize. Of course, that regret took some time. 
And in other news, Blake Shelton may have taken home the top honor at Wednesday night's CMT Awards, the Country Music Awards, but it was Carrie Underwood that uh, that made history with her 18th win. Underwood extended her run as the most decorated artist in history of the fan-voted uh, award show when she won Female Video of the Year. She also received a standing ovation for her performance of Cry Pretty, hosts Little Big Town, also winners of Group Video of the Year. But Underwood, who was a... Um, an American Idol contestant and winner has gone on to great unprecedented success. Both Mexico and the European Union on Wednesday announced retaliatory tariffs on U.S. products as the president prepares to potentially uh, confront uh, those nations and others in talks with allies at the uh, Group of Seven Summit, the G7 gathering. It's going to take place on Friday and Saturday in um, Quebec, Canada. Trump has pushed uh, 25% tariffs on imported steel and 10% on tariffs on aluminum. And the White House adds that more could be in the works. Well, the president's uh, support, uh, I should say Trump supports free trade, but views tariffs as a tool to get the best deal for the country. Larry Kudlow, director of the White House's National Economic Council, told reporters he's hoping that this will be a bargaining chip. Free world twa- trade, rather, is a very good thing indeed, but it is broken. President Trump is trying to fix it, Kudlow said. As I've said before, I think he is the strongest trade reformer in many decades. Well, we'll see if he's successful or not. He'll either be the most successful or there will be a very serious fallout from all of this. Um, Kudlow says that uh, Trump wants to uh, wants trade rather to be on a level playing field. And while other countries may have higher trade barriers, they are demonstrating they aren't shy about adding more. Some uh, key points to consider. A trade war has it already commenced or will it soon? Mexico announced it would impose tariffs between 15 to 25 percent on U.S. exports to its markets, such as pork, apples, uh, potatoes, which could cost U.S. exporters a total of three billion dollars. Mexico is the second largest market for U.S. exports. In 2017, it bought two hundred and seventy seven billion dollars worth of U.S. uh, products. Canada is the largest trading partner for the United States. The European Union also announced Wednesday it will begin imposing tariffs in July. July on steel and agricultural products, among other things, totaling $3.4 billion in cost to U.S. exporters. The Trump administration, in clashing with our allies, could be missing the big picture with China. James Roberts suggests he's a research fellow of economic freedom and growth at the Heritage Foundation. He says the president showed leadership in the G7 on other issues, such as the Paris Climate Treaty and the Iran nuclear deal. But on this issue, trade, he's wrong and they're right, Roberts said. He's a foreign, a former Foreign Service agent with the State Department. Also, if uh, def- in defending current and possible future tariffs, Kudlow urged uh, critics to look at other countries. The United States, by the way, we have the lowest average tariff in the world, Kudlow said. And if you go down a laundry list of industries, you will see we are um, much lower. Our tariff rates are much lower than our competitors. So the president's point is we should all have a level playing field. Well, Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross made the same point in an April speech. However, the notion that the United States has lower tariff rates than any other country is an exaggeration that fits into the administration's political narrative, Roberts says. The agricultural industry in the United States has quite a few trade barriers. New Zealand doesn't, he says. It's part of the administration's political message, we are suckers. Roberts pointed to tariffs on Japanese imports that uh, the Reagan administration imposed in the 80s that aided the U.S. auto industry, as uh, well as protectionist tariffs on imports of sugar, dairy products, and even tomatoes. This gives the wrong message. All countries have 
have some trade barriers, he pointed out. And then what's the role for Congress? Tariffs are the um, role of Congress under the Constitution. However, the legislative branch over time ceded most of its authority to the executive branch. And now we're hearing members say we want that uh, authority back. In defense of the steel and aluminum tariffs, the Trump administration argued national security concerns. Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau took exception to facing tariffs as a national security threat, saying the administration used national security grounds to impose tariffs. That is a stretch. Canada is not going to invade us. Well, last week, Senator Pat Toomey, a Republican out of Pennsylvania, signed on to a bill initially sponsored by Senator Mike Lee that would require executive branch actions on trade, such as raising tariffs, to be approved by Congress. Uh, Senator um, Heidi Heitkamp said that she's considering looking for ways to block the president's tariff power as well. Uh, An investment manager for Thaler said Congress should be cautious without taking a position. The national security value of our steel industry is a viable question. What happens in the next 100 years if the United States doesn't manufacture steel? And then uh, another issue to consider is our approach to China. Um, We're trying to get China to stop stealing more than $100 billion worth of intellectual property every year and open their markets to our products, uh, says one observer. Uh, And so there are a lot of things uh, going on right now. China is part of every conversation on trade, but also should be looked at entirely separately. China is on a 100-year plan. They're okay losing money for 75 years as long as they're better off in 100 years. They can do this because the government controls the economy, not shareholders. America, on the other hand, is a capitalist country and nobody is willing to lose money for one year, much less 75. The United States still holds the Trump cards, so to speak. Thaler says if the United States halted trade with China, the United States market would suffer in the short term, but it would be a debacle for China. China has engaged in intellectual property theft, forced technology transfers, and Trump has taken a bolder step than his predecessors who paid only lip service about the problem with China. The whole world agrees with us regarding China's trade practices. Many parts of that world have, uh, have uh, filed their own complaints on uh, exactly the same grounds, either with the government of China or with the World Trade Organization. Our president has taken action strong and decisive in that area, which is admirable. But again, the, uh, uh, the G7 will be meeting in just a few days, and we'll see what ultimately happens. If the president is successful at uh, getting countries to uh, say uncle rather than a trade war, a tariff war beginning. All right, we're going to take a break. When we return, we'll talk with Erica Young-Wrights. Her book, After College, Navigating Transitions, Relationships, and Faith. Great book for those who are um, reorienting their life back into, well, civilian life, if you will, after years and years of education. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 36 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, the years after college can be some of the most uncertain, unstable times of life. Recent graduates grieve the loss of community. They question their place in the world and struggle to find meaning meaningful work. It can be a shocking uh, discovery that college didn't fully prepare you for the challenges you now face, especially if you've uh, generated some debt. But you're not alone. My next guest uh, for the last uh, decade uh, has specialized in helping college seniors and recent graduates navigate the transition to post-college life. Drawing on best practices and research on senior preparedness, she offers practical tools for a life of faithfulness and flourishing during a critical transitional period. This 
practical guide addresses the top issues graduates face, making decisions, finding friends, managing money, discerning your calling, and much more. If you feel lost in transition, this is a resource to help you flourish as a Christ follower in a very complex world. The book is titled After College, Navigating Transitions, Relationships, and Faith. Erica Young writes, uh, directs Senior Exit. It's a one-year experience that prepares graduating college seniors for the transition into the next phase of life. She works for the CCO, the Coalition for Christian Outreach, reaching out to students at Penn State University. She has an MA in higher education from Geneva College with a graduate uh, uh, reason focus on the senior year transition. She and her husband, Craig, live in uh, State College, Pennsylvania with their two children. Today, she joins us to talk about this great resource simply titled After College, Navigating Transitions, Relationships, and Faith. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I have to tell you, this is a great resource, and I want to know where you were some 30 years ago when I was in the process of (laughs) navigating life after college. In so many ways, I felt the same that I wanted someone to hand me a book like this, and and no doubt that was part of the motivation behind writing it and getting the Senior Exit Program started. I had not the easiest transition out of college and this thing of trying to actively master what we passively suffered. I'm certain that that's played into my passion for the topic. You write that uh, your own story shaped your passion for working with college seniors. Tell us a little bit of your story and how that led you to think about providing a resource at Penn State and now to the rest of the world that helps during this really crucial period. I graduated and... um, had a, had a great head on my shoulder, supportive family, and um, excited to launch life after college. And yet there were so many things about that first year or two out that I really was not prepared to consider. And it was anywhere from uh, questions about my career path. I was an English major undergrad, and I had really not a clear sense of what am I studying in the classroom and how does that line up to a viable job after here. I had questions about identity when I was no longer a student. I mean, too often we attach our role to our identity, and I wasn't a student anymore, and so I I didn't know how to make an A in life after college. The loneliness, um, I wasn't prepared for not having friends on a Friday night. On a Friday night in undergrad, I could just walk outside my apartment and there are people to hang out with. And so on so many levels, budgeting, decision-making, relationships, all of that was so difficult. I also had my heart broken right out of college, and I guess August is the number one time of year where people have their heart broken. So all of that mix just made for a very difficult stretch right out of school. You're right that this book is about pursuing faithfulness in life after college, and I think balancing expectations as well. That's a great point. I think so often um, I see that the alums that struggle the most are those who have these skyscraper expectations for what's going to happen in the next stretch, whether that's I think I'm going to get the dream job after college and I'm going to be able to implement institutional change in my workplace right early on or um, I'm going to, you know, even students who get engaged right out of college or right before they graduate, um, you know, marriage is going to be this amazing thing, and it's it's hard, too. And so I think the expectation that everything is going to be um, a dream and I'm going to, like, you know, soar in every facet of my life, it's, it's putting one foot in front of the other just to be faithful. I don't think we're always prepared for... Um, the cost of discipleship right out of college. Mm-hmm. And I, I appreciate that you put into perspective that 
uh, it oftentimes, probably more times than not, requires um, that kind of faithfulness over a period of time before you see the fruit of uh, your labors. It doesn't come as quickly as I think we, we'd like to think once we're immediately out of college. That's good. That's, I, we often tell our students, you know, the 20s are for training, and it's not that we don't make um, important contributions. I think even just our faithfulness to loving our roommates well or our housemates by doing the dishes and putting stuff away, like all those little contributions do lead to, to greater, um, you know, opportunities to be entrusted with, with God's um, gifts to us and even how we manage our money early on. But I, I think it it takes time to learn these things. And um, those early years can be, can be challenging. And I tell our students, it's, you know, the number one word students often use is weird to describe that Mm -hmm. stretch out. Like it doesn't stay weird till you're 30. Like it's, you find a new normal and you, you start to figure out how to, um, you know, keep, keep being faithful in these little things, but it's a learning curve. And um, there's a reason the term emerging adulthood has come out. It's, it's, we're, we don't graduate from college and then all of our ducks are in a row. It takes some time. Now there's the other side of that, of, you know, individuals who are kind of delaying adulthood and just wandering through their twenties. We're not advocating that, but um, certainly to allow, to to have a posture of humility that just allows the twenties to be a learning time. What do millennials need to transition well into uh, this kind of independence in adulthood? Yeah, I think your comment about expectations. So I think accurate expectations. And we get those by talking to people who have made the transition. One of the things that our alums, our our current seniors love is when alums just come back and share their success or struggle stories. So if there are people listening today that maybe they're making this transition, they just need to normalize some of the challenges that are happening. Just talk to some people who have gone before you. And for those who work with um, 20-somethings or or seniors, uh, just bringing people into their lives who can share success and struggle stories. I also think our our heart attitudes in the transition, you know, um, those those postures of gratitude and humility and um, those kind of things are going to shape how we process what comes at us. Um, I think of our students who have had you know, really challenging first years out, but if they can filter that through a grid of, okay, you know, Jesus did say it's going to cost something to follow him. And I'm not promised that every day is going to, it's going to make, it's going to make me feel like I'm, I'm awesome and successful at my job every moment. And it's, you know, my boss is going to say things to me that I, that I, you know, sometimes I feel like I can never please him or her. And so when you have a, a different grid to process that, um, a robust worldview. We need a robust mm. worldview that yeah. makes sense of everything that's coming at us. That's so good. Now, I would imagine some of the, our older listeners are already rolling their eyes thinking, you know, I didn't need uh, help with transitioning. Is this a <laughs> challenge unique to millennials or is this something that's always been the case, but you're being more and encouraging young people to be more intentional about this transition? Yeah, that's a complicated question because certainly the cultural landscape has changed. Yes. Uh, even in, um, you know, a book that came out on this topic 20 years ago, it's still a, a, a different landscape than it was even 20 years ago. The, just the sheer number of things that are coming at our recent grads and how they have to process those things. We're in a, a you know, post-2008, the, the economic downturn has made a difference in terms of just what does the job market look like right now, um, the, the opportunities for our students to even find a job in their field or a job at all. Um, those, those challenges are coming at them. And, um, 
Yeah, I mean, this is this is definitely a complicated question, but I I do think that um, anyone, regardless, that this this transition is is no you know respecter of age, gender, location that. People are struggling with it, and I want those who are involved in the transition or helping others to know that it is normal to feel like Mm -hmm. that first year out is challenging. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, and we're living in the 21st century. There are unique challenges, and whatever position you might take on all of that, to help young people navigate well is is a worthy pursuit. We're going to take a quick break, but we will continue our conversation. We're talking about the book titled After College, Navigating Transitions, Relationships, and Faith. Erica Young writes is the author. This is really a great book uh, for a young person because it deals honestly with some of the, the challenges that are unique to this generation, um, not for reasons of, of their own character, but because of the landscape they're walking out into. Her book is divided into three parts, faithful to Christ, faithful to community, faithful to our calling. It goes deep and is very practical. We'll continue in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We are back 51 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, many recent college graduates find themselves unprepared for the new responsibilities, hardships, and questions that come with post-college life. And in her new book, After College, Erica Young writes, she steps in as a wise mentor for those recent graduates. She uses her decades' worth of experience to answer grads' top concerns, including questions on dating, making decisions, managing money, finding friends, and more. She compiles uh, advice, stories from other graduates, and biblical insights in this very thoughtful and encouraging guidebook for transition into a new stage of life. She is the director of Senior Exit at Penn State University, a program designed by her and her colleagues to prepare students for success in their post-college years. Uh, Again, I would highly recommend this. If you are attending a graduation or know somebody who's recently graduated, this is uh, one of the best resources I have seen. Well, there are lots of questions that uh, that come up. One of them is establishing oneself in community. And this is in the context of the Christian faith. Uh, as you pointed out, when you're in college, you step out your door, there's a whole uh, community of people to do stuff with. It's very different when you become part of a much larger community with which you're not necessarily connected. What advice do you give to those who are looking to be a part of a community again, but outside of college? Yes, I would say the finding community and friends is a top issue for our recent grads. When I was doing my research, that is like the number one concern. And we can't do life without friends, without like-minded sojourners in this life. And so I think um, one key thing we talk about with our students is um, a theology of place that oftentimes we say yes to that job without even thinking about, is this a place where I can find community? If I'm going to move to this location, what is the, you know, the, the opportunity to get connected to a local church? And so from the, from the get-go, really considering um, place and, and realizing that sometimes students, they have to go for the job, and, and we understand that. Um, so with that in mind, I think just um, it takes time. I know, I know one of my interns one year was like, I just wasn't prepared for the patience and intentionality it takes to make friends after college. Sometimes just getting out of the rhythm or even the rut of our week when we're, there's so many parts of life after college that can be overwhelming and exhausting. And so the idea of like, oh, going to that midweek Bible study or even that company potluck, like I just want to go home and binge on my Netflix show, but pushing ourselves 
out of our rhythms and showing up to those things, even if they're awkward. I've won alum who's like push through the awkwardness to get to the relationship because we need relationships. And so surrendering some of our expectations, maybe our best friend um, might be a decade older or not in the same life stage as us, what we're used to in undergrad. And so I know my best friend out of college was the woman who lived below me in a, an apartment and she's still one of my closest friends today. And now she's also a follower of Jesus because of something God was doing in terms of place. She was questioning spirituality at the time. And so God knows God mm. decides the places where we should live and um, really surrendering maybe our picture yeah. and welcoming um, who God might want to bring into our lives. Oh, that's so good. Now, what if you have no idea what job you're good at or if you uh, take a job you don't want? Because once you finish college, kind of the big thing is finding your place in terms of employment. And it's not the only question, but there's a challenge if you can't find a job at all or the job you end up taking isn't the one you trained for. And you help uh, young people navigate through those questions as well. Yeah, I mean, I I definitely freaked out a group of parents when I was at um, an event with a whole bunch of recent grads or they're about to graduate. And there's people in the room who they studied something for four years and they think, I don't even think I want to do this with my life. Mm. And I want to say it's going to be okay. The parents are, you know, oh my goodness, did you just tell me that? Like how many dollars did we just drop on this education? And so um, having a degree is an awesome thing. And it, it may feel like right away doors are not opening. And so um, I don't want to give a pat answer to that, but I, it will be okay. And sometimes we're going to do a less than best job, you know, do, have to do work that's less than our ideal. And I say milk it for all it's worth. Learn things from that job. Maybe it's maybe it's a waitressing job or you're donning a green apron and serving lattes, not what you expected right after college, but there's people dynamics involved. There's opportunity to manage others. Involved. Like all of those things, even in a job that many people might say, oh, this is like a whatever job, I encourage our students don't write off any stretch, even a stretch of unemployment, that there's things that God can do in our heart, in our character as we're dealing with this this didn't work out the way that I wanted it to work out. And I have students who reflect on stretches where, oh, wow, that job was totally not the job I thought I would be doing after college. Um, and, and, and looking back and saying, wow, okay, I, I learned things from just being in that work environment that prepared me to be the leader that I am today now in this corporate setting. And so um, God doesn't waste any stretch. And we, we learn by trying stuff. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. Sometimes we get into it and we're like, this is not, this is what I trained to do, but I hate this. And it's okay. We can pivot in a different direction and, and we learn when we try things. So for those that's still in school, I really encourage do those internships, um, do the job shadowing, the informational interviewing, anytime you can get a quote, realistic preview. One writer talks about um, realistic previews of the real world before you actually get into it. Those are priceless. Yeah. One of the things you write about that I think is really central is how do I make God honoring decisions about what job to take, where to live, whom to marry, and to see the, the decisions that we make in the, this transition period as being of, of importance. It may not lead to the thing that I thought ultimately I'd be doing, but to seek God's, God's direction and, and how we can honor him in the midst of this season is an important um, aspect of your book. Yeah, I think decision making is complicated. I think sometimes we do overcomplicate it, um, and and we fall on all different 
parts of the spectrum of this. You know, sometimes we're, um, I see students who are just wringing their hands and like, I just want to hear from God and I'll do exactly what he says. And um, sometimes God gives us two really good options and we get to choose and, and he wants us to choose, trusting that he's going to honor either one of those decisions. And um, I think sometimes we say, I see what I see students do is pit kind of one good choice against another. And like, if I go to the right, it's failure and to the left, it's successor, you know, like that it's um, only, there's only one right choice. And so I, I just want to help people breathe a little easier if they're wringing their hands over. I have to make the exact right choice. Otherwise, it's like this thing leads to the next and leads to the next, and then I'm cast in some parallel universe, and I'll never, you know, be on, on track with God's plan. Like, I just want people to, to breathe a little easier yeah. if they're in that in that boat. And then on the other hand, I think sometimes we could involve God more in our decision-making. And it's not just when the big decision comes. It's our daily rhythms. It's cultivating that relationship with Christ daily so that we're on his frequency. You know, Tozer talks about just being attuned to God and that we, we hear from him in the everyday. We're just, we're going to be more aware of how he's speaking in the big decisions. And um, I, I think every decision senior year or right out of college can feel like a really big decision at the time. Uh, even though it may be life-changing, few decisions are irreversible. I've had students who you know, started grad school thinking this was the right next step and then realized this is, this is not where I'm supposed to be. And yeah, it costs money and there were, um, you know, things that they rearranged their life to be a part of, but it wasn't irreversible. And so even though decisions are really big um, in our minds, it's, it's still going to be okay even if we make a decision. Okay. I've had students who even moved across the country and realized this isn't what I want. Um, not ideal, but you can still move back. So I, I do want people to breathe a little more <laughs> easily with decision-making. And I want to challenge people to keep inviting God into every step of the decision. Well, this is a great book. And again, I would highly recommend it. It's titled After College, Navigating Transitions, Relationships, and Faith. Erica, thank you so much for writing the book and for and for being with us here today. Thank you so much for having me, Georgine. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. By the way, the book is um, published by InterVarsity Press. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, news and traffic up next. When we return, we're going to talk with the stream's Rachel Alexander. We'll talk about the former FBI director who's uh, seeking, well, we'll tell you all about it when we return. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back to the Georgine Rice Show, second hour. Glad to have you with us. Today we're going to talk with uh, my next guest, Rachel Alexander, in a moment. But Peter Sprigg, a Family Research Council senior fellow, is going to join us to talk about a plan that uh, was hatched in Delaware. It's since been reversed, but they were going to allow school children to choose their own gender and race without the benefit of their parents' knowledge or consent. And we're going to talk with Petrina Mosley. She's with the Family Research Council, Director of uh, Culture and Women's Advocacy, on another pivotal First Amendment case, Nifla versus Becerra. We'll tell you more about that when she joins us later in this hour. Well, federal investigators, my next guest writes, are considering whether to recommend charges against former FBI Director Andrew McCabe for lying to federal agents about a media leak. 
Justice Department Inspector General Michael Horowitz made the charges in a comprehensive 35-page memo to the FBI. And he says that McCain uh, misled FBI agents and then FBI Director James Comey four times. Three times he was under oath. McCabe falsely told them he did not authorize disclosures to the media in October of 2016. The Wall Street Journal published a story with the leaked information in October of 2016. The report from the Office of the Inspector General says that at least one time McCabe lied knowingly and intentionally and is um, the inspector general is expected to release another report any day now on the FBI's handling of the Clinton email scandal. In fact, they announced earlier today that that would be next week. Here to talk with us about all of that and uh, uh, the, the piece she wrote in the, uh, the stream is my next guest, Rachel Alexander. She um, uh, writes about the case against former FBI director Andrew McCabe and why he should be prosecuted. Thank you so much for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. Well, Mr. McCabe is seeking immunity for uh, reasons that uh, are rather puzzling if he believes himself to be innocent. But uh, remind us of how we got to uh, to this place, um, who Andrew McCabe is and the leaks that he's now being accused of. He is the former FBI deputy director, the number two guy there at the FBI, and he was originally in charge of the investigation into Hillary Clinton's email and server um, he is married to a woman, though, who received a very large donation from Hillary Clinton's uh, friend, uh, McAuliffe, and so he really should have not even been overseeing this investigation into Hillary's emails. Well, that kind of led to uh, investigating the Clinton Foundation and the corruption going on there, and so he was, he was investigating that, and that's when the Department of Justice started pressuring him to close down the investigation into the Clinton Foundation. And uh, that's why he put the leaks out there, because he didn't want to look like the guy who was shutting down the investigation into Hillary Clinton. So it was essentially to save his own bacon. Yeah, it was to you know make it look like he wasn't the bad guy and somebody else was doing it and and he lied four times you know the FBI uh, the investigation I'm sorry from the Inspector General documented four times that he lied three times under oath. Well, let's talk about the false statements that he uh, that he made in this investigation for which he may be held accountable for and is seeking immunity regarding. Yeah, basically, he told uh, the inspector general that he did not authorize these leaks. These were leaks made to the Wall Street Journal about the Department of Justice trying to pressure him to shut down the investigation. Um, He lied three times, you know, under oath to them. He also lied another time to James Comey, um, you know, the former uh, director of the FBI, who was above him at that time, who has said he wouldn't have authorized the leaks. That was a bad idea. It makes the FBI and the Department of Justice look like they're not getting along. So that's basically what he lied about was, um, you know, whether he had authorized these leaks or not. Now, what kinds of um, charges might he face if, in fact, he is found guilty and is not granted immunity? Well, he's looking at up to five years in prison for each felony. Um, this is a pretty serious uh, deal. I mean, you know, if they threw the book at him, he'd get 20 years in prison. Well, that's, that's very sobering, so one can understand why he is seeking 
uh, immunity in this uh, this whole thing. Is it likely that he's going to be granted immunity uh, before he testifies? You know, I hear from legal experts that it's rare for somebody to ask for immunity. Um, If they really want his testimony pretty bad, I bet they will grant him immunity. So if that were the case, then there would be no penalty at all for having violated the law. Pretty much. I mean, they could try to prosecute him on other charges, but, you know, it's pretty cut and dry. I mean, he's going to want immunity on these four felonies. So if he is not granted immunity, um, he can always plead the fifth. What would happen if that were the case? Um, they could still press charges against him, even if he pleads the fifth. And, um, you know, because there's a lot of circumstantial evidence that implicates him even without him talking. So you believe that he ought to be prosecuted for reasons I suppose we don't even need to explain, but maybe should. Um, why do you think he should be held accountable, as you and I certainly would be? Right. He's not above the law. And, you know, just because he's this, you know, big, powerful official, unlike us little people, um, he shouldn't get special treatment. And, you know, these these lies, the evidence is so blatant. You know, one of them, uh, he said he hadn't authorized uh, this this woman to speak to the Wall Street Journal, and later they discovered text messages. He'd been talking to her all along. That's the uh, Paige Strzok text email, those two people who were having an affair in the FBI. Um, He had authorized Paige, and he was telling her, uh, you know, all throughout. So they're pretty blatant lies, and I don't see how he gets out of them. Mm. Well, we know that um, the report on the Hillary Clinton emails is going to be released uh, next week. Why? It, I think it's really difficult for the average uh, American to follow all of the threads that we're seeing in these uh, ongoing investigations and reports and, and, and all of this. Uh, why should the average American care about this particular um, set of violations that the former FBI um, uh, director is involved in? Because these are major crimes. This isn't just like a misdemeanor where you might get probation or a wrist slap. You know, if you and I or I committed four felonies, we would be locked up. You know, at least as a former prosecutor, I can tell you, we'd probably get a couple years in prison. This guy needs to be treated like every other American is treated. Well, we'll certainly watch with interest what happens next. Now, he's scheduled to um, to testify before a committee. Is that next week? It would be next week, yes. So these things are... Um, are converging on a, a very short timeline. So I'm, I'm grateful at the possibility that some of these things will be resolved in the short term, but also very concerned about what we might discover um, when these, uh, these hearings and disclosures take place. I appreciate your writing on the subject and for talking with us today. Thank you, Georgine. Thank Bye. you. Again, Rachel Alexander writes for The Stream. Up next, we're going to talk with Peter Sprigg. He's a Family Research Council senior fellow. We're going to talk about uh, Delaware. They made news earlier for a proposal, a policy that would allow school children as young as five to choose their own gender and race, choose their own race without their parents' knowledge or consent. Uh, Well, they received quite a response to that proposal, and the governor, Delaware's governor, has rescinded the controversial policy. They've adjusted it. We're going to talk about what happened and what happens next with Peter Sprigg. We're also going to give away, let's see, we have a um, World Forestry Center Discovery Museum uh, family pack to give away. We'll do that uh, in our next segment as well. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. 
You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 19 minutes after 5 o'clock. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, a proposal that would let students in Delaware as young as five choose their own race and gender identity without approval from their parents has sparked a bitter battle in the first state. Well, it did spark one. Well, that's since been reversed. The administration of the Delaware governor, John Carney, a Democrat, has reversed that prior policy proposal that would have allowed children to identify as transgender at school without notifying their parents or obtaining their permission. Well, the Delaware Education Secretary Susan Bunting reversed course after reviewing some 11,000 comments, the majority opposed to the original provision that was termed an anti-discrimination policy. We're here to talk with us about this from its beginning to its, um, well, not really end, but Peter Sprigg is Family Research Council uh, Senior Fellow. Thank you so much for joining us here today. Well, thank you, Georgine. This seems like a peculiar proposal to begin with. Maybe we should start at the beginning. What prompted uh, this action on the part of the uh, uh, the education secretary? Uh, well, um, the uh, the secretary of education in, in Delaware had uh, issued a regulation on prohibition of discrimination. Um, at the request of the governor, apparently, last year. And when the first draft of this uh, was released for public comment back in November, it caused quite an outcry. Uh, the The most significant part, or the, the part that drew the most attention, was, um, was the provision that you, uh, I think you described, where it would actually allow a student to self-identify their gender or their race um, without uh, any, without parental permission, without any uh, verification with the parents, or without the parents even being notified, and uh, this um, was uh, publicized by our friends at the Delaware Family Policy Council and. Todd Starnes at Fox News also did a great job of drawing attention to it on a national basis, and uh, and we at Family Research Council highlighted it as well. And they, um, as you mentioned, received over 11,000 comments on this, and uh, and just uh, just uh, last week or June 1st announced that they were. Uh, pulling back, they introduced a revised version of the regulation and uh, pulled back on that most controversial part of the policy, uh, which would have allowed uh, children to identify uh, without any consultation with parents. And uh, so that part has been revised and they cannot change their gender or race in the official school records unless the parents approve. Um, that's a huge victory for all the parents and, and concerned citizens who spoke out in Delaware. Uh, we do have some remaining concerns about the policy. It's really not perfect, but it was a victory to see that one particularly outrageous part of the proposal be um, withdrawn. So the notion was that parents could not be trusted with the best interests of their sons and daughters uh, if they find that their sons and daughters are confused about their, their race or their gender. Oh, that's right. And uh, uh, not that, not only that they could not be trusted, but that the uh, essentially that the school would have the authority to change uh, to recognize this change without notifying the parents. Now, the the uh, family policy council there in Delaware is somewhat concerned now because the um, 
the, the revised policy says they cannot make a change in the person's official identity uh, without parental permission. However, they can have this conversation uh, without notifying the parents. Uh, if the if the child says, well, I don't want my parents to be notified, then the school will not notify them that they had this conversation. And uh, some people are concerned about that, that if their child is struggling with their gender identity, that the parents should be notified um, at, that this struggle is taking place so that they can offer appropriate guidance and help to their own child. So that's one of the weaknesses that still remains in this policy. Hmm. And my understanding is, as with the first revision, this one has to be subject to the public's um, comments for a period of time before it becomes official policy. Well, that's correct. I think uh, I think it's until July 6th that people have the opportunity to comment. So we are encouraging um, uh, people, especially those who live in Delaware, obviously, uh, to submit comments to the uh, State Department of Education about the remaining concerns that they may have. Well, this it's breathtaking, but I suppose it's not altogether surprising. This isn't the first uh, time that we've seen parental authority being undermined and underestimated. And uh, the ACLU weighed, weighed in, and their suggestion was that now the, the rights of students have been uh, subordinated to uh, the, the parents who uh, clearly can't be trusted uh, to oversee what's in the best interest of the child. And this is just the latest example. I'm grateful that there was a great outcry that reversed this decision um, but again, the fact that it was made in the first place is very disconcerting. Well, you're right. And really, the, with respect to gender identity, this proposal was not that much different from the policy that um, the Obama administration uh, mm. proposed for the entire nation uh, in the last year uh, that President Obama was in office back in May of 2016. Uh, they issued a uh, an interpretation of Title IX, the federal law, uh, prohibiting sex discrimination in education that would have done many of these same things. Now, the the thing that really turned heads in Delaware was that people were to not only be allowed to identify their gender, but to identify their race. Uh, so uh, that was something that we'd never seen in any comparable policy before. But, uh, but the, with respect to the gender identity, this was very similar to the Obama policy, which fortunately was reversed by the Trump administration once uh, President Trump took office. Nevertheless, uh, even though this is no longer sort of policy at the national level of the U.S. Department of Education, um, th- there's no question that the LGBT activists across the country are pushing this state by state and school district by school district all across the country. So parents uh, have to continue to be vigilant uh, despite the, uh, the the good reversal of the Obama policy at the federal level. Yeah, you're absolutely right. The uh... The moral of the story is to remain vigilant. I so appreciate uh, the work of the Family Research Council and organizations similar to it across the country. Thank you so much for talking with us today. Thank you, Georgine. Appreciate it very much. Again, Peter Sprigg is Family Research Council Senior Fellow. We're going to take a moment and give away a family four-pack of passes to the World Forestry Center Discovery Museum. And I should mention that this Saturday they've got a special event going on. Smokey Bear is going to be there. They're going to have some special things for kids. So from 10 to 5 on uh, Saturday at the World Forestry Center Discovery Museum in Washington Park, the admission is uh, is half off. So this is a great weekend to check that out. But the um, passes that we're going to be giving away here in just a moment are... Um, 
good for any weekend. We got um, up to four admissions in our family pass for the World Forestry Center Discovery Museum. By the way, right now they have the Wildfires Destroy More Than Trees exhibit. Uh, It's going to be leaving at some point in the not-too-distant future. Uh, It features information about last year's wildfires here in Oregon and how it's impacted our community. You'll also learn about fire-resistant plants in a live plant display there. And they have a 1930s fire truck and a modern fire truck for you to uh, uh, to compare. We want to give away this uh, four passes to our second caller and the number 503-786-9390. 503-786-9390. Again, a family pass for World Forestry Center Discovery Museum. Good for up to four admissions. This weekend is a great time to uh, use those passes, but if not, uh, these will take you through the summer. 503-786-9390. Second caller. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. In 2015, the state of California passed AB 775, the so-called Reproductive Fact Act. Well, the law mandated that medical pro-life pregnancy centers provide written or digital information to their patients, like a sign in the waiting room, on how to obtain a state-funded abortion. That meant that nonprofit pro-life medical clinics as well as their staff and volunteers, were being forced to violate their conscience as um, uh, an outright violation of their First Amendment rights. Well, in defense of the 135 California Pregnancy Resource Centers, and I would go on to suggest resource centers across the country uh, that it represents, NIFLA uh, filed a lawsuit challenging that legislation. Arguments for this landmark pro-life free speech case was heard by the U.S. Supreme Court on the 20th of March of this year. Now, NIFLA, by the way is the National Institute of Family and Life Advocates. It's a uh, compilation of pregnancy resource centers. Here to tell us about what we might expect when the Supreme Court announces its decision at some point in the very near future is Patrina Mosley. She's Family Research Council Director of Life, Culture, and Women's Advocacy. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Happy to be here. Well, this law in uh, in 2015 has been the thorn in the side of every pregnancy resource center in the state of California, and it finally made its way all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court. Can you give us some indication on how oral arguments went when they were heard back in March? Well, when the uh, ADS staff came out that day, we all started smiling, cheering, clapping. They had smiles on their faces. And they gave a positive uh, rendition of what happened in the courtrooms. Of course, they can't say exactly for yeah. sure um, whether this case will go uh, in the way of freedom. But they were very optimistic that they that they made a good case for free speech and that the government can't compel anyone, let alone uh, a licensed organization, to advertise or promote something that goes directly against their very existence. Uh, so this was a clear free speech issue that we believe that we're going to see a win, and that's what we expect. And, and many on our side for freedom were very hopeful about that. Let's talk about what's at stake. I mentioned that there are 135 California pregnancy centers that uh, NIFLA represented in this case, NIFLA versus Becerra. Uh, but what's at stake um, should the government uh, decide in favor of the state of California? Well, well, no, they shouldn't. I mean, this is this is coerced speech. The government is one thing for the government to tell you 
what you can't say, but it's another thing for the government to tell you what you must say. Uh, this would just be the same as if, you know, um, if some vegan restaurant were forced by the government to promote McDonald's quarter pounders for a dollar. Like, what sense would that make? That goes against their very the very nature of their business, of their purpose, and it drowns out their messaging. Um, and the same is with life-affirming pregnancy centers, is that this was a bill designed to, to squinch their voice in a woman's life, to not give them the, the full options and choices that are available to women. Women who go to these life-affirming centers, they know what they're getting into. They know that this is a, a place where they can get options to choose life. I mean, Planned Parenthood and other abortion clinics, they receive millions of dollars from the government to advertise wherever they want. And there's no need for them to co-op the spaces of a pregnancy center to do that. When you have so much money that you can advertise elsewhere. Uh, the, the wording of the bill is to directly um, target pregnancy centers, those who do not perform abortions, who do not perform state-sponsored funded abortions. Well, why would they do that? It's yeah. to continually crowd out the pro-life message because more and more women are choosing life. More and more women are seeing that, that choosing life is a better option for them than what these abortion clinics are often handing them. So this is a clearly a political agenda that's been tried before in other states. And if we succeed in the Supreme Court uh, with this NIFLA case, then that has uh, significant ramifications for multiple states, Texas, Maryland just to name uh, a few that uh, ADF has been involved in, it, it will hopefully put this type of bill, this type of law to rest, to say that, no, as a state, you cannot force entities to, to compel speech that goes against their very nature and goes against um, the, the option for the woman to choose life. Uh, one more thing to point, in, point out in this particular bill is that it even says that the bill is to protect women's right to know all of her options. And here they are interfering with that. The, the exact wording is that existing law provides that the station not deny or interfere with a woman's right to choose or obtain an abortion. I mean, this is supposed to be the, you know, the land of the free, the pro-choice side that they want women to have all the choices. They want them to have the choice to abort. Okay, well, that's great. Well, what if a woman chooses not to abort? What if she chooses to go to a life-affirming pregnancy center. Is that, does she make the wrong choice? Are you condemning her for making that choice? Do you want to make it harder for her to make that choice? Um, so it, it definitely points to some, some serious concerns in, in the hypocrisy of, of being yeah. pro-choice when you're trying to co-opt the spaces of these pro-life centers. I know one of the justices during the, the hearing in March, I think on the 20th, he made the point. So if you require, if you compel speech then from the pregnancy resource centers, should you also then be required to uh, provide information regarding the services they provide? So it certainly was an issue that they, that they considered. And I do appreciate your, your mentioning that there have been efforts, uh, unsuccessful to this point, to try to do the same thing in other states. Oregon is among them. And if they succeed in the state of California, it has much broader implications than just the state of California, and it certainly would embolden those who have uh, made previous efforts uh, and failed, uh, but would certainly come back uh, and try to make similar uh, requirements on pregnancy resource centers across the country. Yeah, absolutely. And, and what this bill is also designed to do is to not only just quench their voice, but to abolish them from existence 
as an option for women. If you don't comply with this regulation, your first fine is $500. Your second fine is $1,000. Now, these pregnancy centers, they only operate on a budget of, you know, no more than probably 125000 a year, according to the, to the last study that was done in uh, Passion to Serve by Family Research Council and Charlotte Lozer Institute. Um, I mean, that's a very, very small budget for, for a, a crisis pregnancy center to run off of because they are giving their services for free to the community. Yeah, and no I, I think it's important to, to point out that pregnancy resource centers do not receive any public money. They are uh, they, they function only on the donations that are given to them by those who support their work. Let's talk a bit about what pregnancy resource centers do, because I think that's an important part of the equation. Uh, as you mentioned, they offer their services without cost to uh, their clients. Uh, just give us a, a brief explanation of, of what they do in, in contrast to the money-making machine that opposes uh, their work. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, these pregnancy centers, there are some that are licensed that provide uh, um, uh, care for getting a sonogram, getting STD uh, testing, um, STI testing, and there's there's those who do that and more of giving free baby clothes, free, free food, um, vitamins, prenatal vitamins, of resources where they can go to apply for WIC if they need it, uh, which is um, an opportunity that the government gives for women to, to buy food for their for their children. And all this is at no cost to the mother. Counseling, uh, walking them through that decision of choosing life, and maybe even going through the adoption process. They provide free resources for that so that they can know all their options, get the counseling they need it. And a lot of these places who are who are religiously based they will do discipleship and emotional counseling for the aftermath. Say if they do choose to give their baby up for adoption, you know, who's going to walk through them, uh, through, uh, walk with them through that process of letting go. I mean, this is, this is a, a whole woman's health um, entity. I mean, pro-life pregnancy centers, they walk women from point A to point B to point C in their lives at, at a very, very emotional time in their lives, whether yeah. it be for good or for bad. And so, um, it's very important that women have uh, access to these pregnancy centers uh, who, who are affirming life and helping them choose life. And their messages shouldn't be squinched out by being overfined and being forced to shut down their business or to drown out their message of being pro-life by having to put up 48-point signs in their window yeah. saying, here's where you can get a free abortion. Yeah. Well, Patrina Mosley, thank you so much for talking with us today. All right. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it very much. Again, Patrina is Family Research Council Director of Life, Culture and Women's Advocacy on the pivotal First Amendment case, NIFLA versus Becerra, that's coming out any day now from the U.S. Supreme Court. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll wrap things up. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. There's a lot of conversation uh, about uh, China and the United States, the president negotiating tariffs and all of that. But there's another disaster that's looming, and that is the human rights disaster. China's persecution of Christians is at its highest level since Mao Zedong. That's what we're now being told. Watch, watch dog groups rather say that the persecution of Christians and other religious minorities there is at its most intense since the Cultural Revolution. Churches are being shuttered, Bibles confiscated, believers arrested at rates not seen in decades. Well, evidence of the crackdown was in plain view last 
last or rather this week when police raided Early Rain Covenant Church. It's an underground parish in the southwestern Sichuan uh, province to preempt a memorial service commemorating the 29th anniversary of the Tiananmen Square massacre of anti-government protesters. Well, according to China Aid, an advocacy group that documents human rights abuses in the communist nation, 17 people were violently detained, including Pastor Wang Yi and his wife, who attempted to block the door. Pastor Bob Fu, founder and president of China Aid, said that the number of people arrested in China for exercising their religious freedom has reached the highest level since the end of the Cultural Revolution. He cited internal figures showing a nearly five-fold increase in the number of Christians who were persecuted by the government last year. Well, for Christians alone, last year we documented persecution against 1,265 churches with a number of people persecuted over 223,000. And that is just the tip of the iceberg, Mr. Fu said. In 2016, there were 762 cases of persecution, according to their documentation, with a number of people persecuted 48,000. It really is almost five times as much. He said China Aid knows the 3,700 Christians who were arrested in 2017, up from 3,500 the previous year. Uh, some religious dissenters and human rights activists have been detained for years, Mr. Fu said, with their families left to wonder if they're still alive. Well, the spike in Christian persecution comes as critics say political and religious freedoms have been curtailed under the leadership of President Xi Jinping, who Mr. Fu said will go down in history as a sort of chairman, Mao Jr., who carried out a little cultural revolution. New regulations for religious affairs went into effect in February, requiring houses of worship to register with the government, which explains why there are still underground churches. Mr. Yang, the pastor arrested on Monday, had been a vocal critic of the regulations. He told China's source earlier this year that the intended effect of the legislation was to limit citizens' worship activity, religious activity in general, to the time and location the government decides. Ultimately, my position is quite simple, Mr. Yang said. As far as faith is concerned, these new regulations are evil. As far as the Constitution is concerned, they are illegal. As far as politics are concerned, they are foolish. As the pastor of a house church, I intend to peacefully reject this regulation's uh, illegitimacy and implementation, end quote. Mr. Fu said persecution against Christians had increased dramatically since the 1st of February when the regulations took effect. Since that time, there have been thousands of churches banned, he said. We haven't even had time to count them. Well, the U.S. State Department uh, released a report in April that again singled out China as one of the handful of nations tagged as flagrant abusers of their citizens' right to religious freedom. The report found that the Chinese government was carrying out a far-reaching strategy to control, govern, and manip- manipulate rather all aspects of faith, including using torture to force confessions and compel individuals to renounce their faith. In a press conference last week, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo said the U.S. would not stand by as spectators to these sorts of atrocities. We will uh, get into the ring and stand in solidarity with every individual who seeks to enjoy their most fundamental of human rights, Mr. Pompeo said in his brief remarks. Well, like many other targets of the State Department religion, Religious Freedom Report, China reacted angrily to the U.S. criticism. The so-called report by the U.S. is fraught with political biases against China and slanders China's religious policy. The foreign minister spokesman uh, told reporters at a May 31st briefing, the nonsense is not even worth refuting. Well, the Chinese government protects its citizens. He went on to say uh, citizens' freedoms of religious belief in accordance with the law. Mr. Xu 
uh, said, we urge the U.S. to look squarely at and respect the fact, discard biases and stop issuing such reports and using the religious issue to interfere in China's internal affairs, end quote. Uh, There are nearly 100 million Christians in China, 100 million, but they still represent a very small fraction of the country's 1.4 billion citizens. A recent survey that was published by Gallup International found that China is the least religious country in the world. The report found that more than two-thirds of Chinese citizens identify as atheists, more than double the percentage found in any other nation. An additional 23 percent say that they are non-religious, according to the same survey, and only 9 percent say that they are religious, whatever that may mean. Mr. Fu said the government has used the number to a number of tactics, rather, to suppress religious expression there, from cutting out the electricity and water in churches to demolishing them outright. In January, government officials dynamited the Golden Lampstand Church. We talked about it at the time. One of the largest evangelical churches in the northern uh, Shangji province. Other uh, strategies include raising crosses from the uh, uh, from the horizon, confiscating Bibles, censoring certain passages, installing pulpit cameras that can recognize faces and sending believers to re-education camps. In February, more than 100 Christians and other religious minorities were sent to these camps, also known as mind transforming centers in the northwestern a part of the country, according to World Watch Monitor. One woman said she lost contact with her husband, the leader of a community of Christians who came uh, from the Muslim background after he was sent to one of these re-education centers. I don't know where my husband is right now, but I believe that God still uses him in prisons or in camps. She told the World Watch Monitor, sometimes I am worried that he doesn't have enough clothes to keep himself warm in prison. Well, last month, Chinese police carried out a raid on at least five houses of worship in the eastern Shandong province, seizing more than 1,100 Bibles and other illegal publications, in quotes. And last year, the government in China's coastal Zhejiang province ordered the installation of cameras and other surveillance equipment in churches purportedly to combat terrorism, China Aid reported. Hundreds of police officers converged on churches in the areas to carry out the order, beating and arresting Christians who resisted. Well, Mr. Fu said Western governors and uh, governments, rather, and corporations could be applying more pressure on the communist regime. He condemned Apple for agreeing to comply with regulations that would give authorities easier access to text messages, emails, and other data stored by Chinese citizens in the iCloud, saying, I hope Mr. Trump can tweet about this, Mr. Fu said. It's already a human rights disaster. Just another reminder that we here in the West who enjoy the freedom of religion, whether or not we exercise it as vigorously and as heartily as we should, are in fact praying for and remembering those who are persecuted for their faith. There are occasions in which we might have some influence. Uh, We know that the Secretary of State is going to be traveling uh, with that, uh, the issue of religious freedom being uppermost as the the goal of that travel. I'm not sure to which locations at this point, but the uh, government has made that a priority. And so for the sake of those who suffer for their faith, I'm encouraged by that, but recognize that uh, that's, that's not enough, that as a follower of Christ, I have an obligation to remember them, to pray for them uh, as well. Well, tomorrow on the program being Friday, we are anticipating, well, turning to the lighter side of the news. So I hope you plan to be with us for that. Keeping in mind that the Rose Festival is in full swing. The parade is coming up on Saturday and the fleet. They're coming in this evening uh, and uh, tours will begin in some places today, but uh, more uh, Friday and Saturday. And I believe also on Sunday. All right. I want to thank James Blinn for engineering and producing today's program. And thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. 
Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.